0: This is Dr. Kara Shepherd, and you're listening to Goat Talk with the Goat Doc. listening to Goat Talk with the Goat Doc, this is episode 16 and I'm going to try to talk about meningeal worm kind of off the top of my head in my truck. I got a listener email asking to talk about meningeal worm and it's a good timely uh, topic for the northern hemisphere because uh, fall, September through November, tends to be when we see these cases that are clinical for meningeal worm. Um, so we'll talk about that and what it looks like and what I do with it and what the prognosis is for these guys. Uh, as always, this podcast is, is provided with the intent to educate and inform. It is not a substitute for professional medical advice or veterinary care provided by your primary vet and I strongly encourage you to establish and maintain a current and valid VCPR veterinarian client patient relationship with your local vet. So meningeal worm is a problem mostly for small ruminants and Camelids. So camelids are alpacas and llamas, uh, and they're even. Meningial worm is probably even more of a problem for camelids than it is for small ruminants. Um, The meningeal worm is called that because it goes to the neural tissue so like the spinal cord and less optimally and generally less commonly can uh, involve the brain Uh, if you look it up on wikipedia it's got a great description that it is a neurotropic nematode parasite which is just a really fun thing to say and uh, neurotropic uh, would be an affinity for neural tissue so spinal cord and brain the uh, species name for meningeal worm is parellafostrongylus tenuous. people might uh, i think people most commonly call it meningeal worm or p tenuous because the whole parellafostrongylus thing is a long thing to say um so this is a problem in areas where there is a white teal, white-tailed deer population. So New England certainly has plenty of white-tailed deer, uh, probably most of like the northern part of the United States, and uh, Canada has pretty solid white-tailed deer population. Um, and P. tenuous is its normal definitive host is the white-tailed deer. Uh, The definitive host is like the final host in a parasite life cycle uh, that is required for it to like come to maturity and reproduce. As most, or maybe not most, but many parasites p tenuous has like a a kind of complicated life cycle this is one of those crazy biology things where like i'm just like why did that happen it's so crazy and weird um there are and in most parasites usually gastrointestinal parasites which p tenuous has like a gi portion to its life cycle uh it uh, has like st- different larval stages, so we call them L1, L2, L3 stages, which it like molts from this like small larva to like a different larva, and it's just got a complicated life cycle. And maybe like people who are very specific parasitologists know all the details of these, and I probably knew them better once upon a time when I had to take an exam for them. Uh But I don't know them so clearly now. I know what matters clinically, what they look like, and how to kill them. (laughs) Because that's what matters to me in in my immediate life. So, P-tenuous, white-tailed deer. And so the the P-tenuous worm is like going to have its life cycle and normally going to... um, use deer as its definitive host, but it is not going to uh, cause a clinical problem for the white-tailed deer like it does for aberrant hosts. So, I'm just honestly, I'm just kind of like skimming Wikipedia here for the complicated life cycle. Because, like I said, it doesn't really like matter clinically to me that much. Whether it's like L1 or L2 or what it is that actually is going to cause the spinal cord damage in our domestic species. Sheep and goats and llamas and alpacas. It matters to me how to kill them. Um, So... In a normal life cycle, the the <laughs> I'm laughing because it says brainworms, which is also another fun thing to call. P. tenuous. Uh, The adults live there. They lay eggs, I guess, and go into the lungs. They hatch in the lungs. This is a common thing for uh, some parasite life cycles to have some kind of component of their life cycle be involving the lungs because then they cause irritation to the lungs and the animals cough, which provides the parasite an opportunity to get into the gastrointestinal tract. So the larvae go up. They get swallowed into the GI and then they poop out the back end and the intermediate host and like part of prevention of meningeal worm infection in our domestic species is to know that the intermediate host of these guys is a slug or a snail. So either of those little slimy mucus producing critters uh, can pick up. The, I think it's the L1 stage and then it provides that intermediate host to develop into the next stage <laughs> so this is the, the part of the life cycle that can cause problems for our domestic species, our small ruminants, I guess cows don't cows I think are far enough different from our small ruminants goats and sheep and uh, camelids then far enough away from deer. Like a, a cow is a different enough to host animal that if a cow happens to eat a snail with this intermediate stage of meningeal worm, it's just going to die. Like that environment is too different from uh, like what it's looking for. So it's normal, it's normal home is white tailed deer brain. And then a cow is environment. Like it gets into the cow and it's just like, nope. And it dies. It cannot complete its life cycle in the cow. So, I mean, which makes sense to me. Like if you look like at an evolutionary tree or whatever, probably on that you've got deer and you've got other like cervids elk and different species of deer and what have you um and goats and sheep like I even between goats and sheep I would probably argue that goats are even closer to deer than sheep are and camelids are right in there too they're I mean camelids are kind of their own weird thing um but phylogenically evolutionarily both camelids and small ruminants are more similar to deer than cows are to deer and that difference is just enough where like the the larval stage that's in the slug or the snail which like it sounds kind of silly cuz like people are always gonna say oh goats eat anything and they really don't if you have goats you know that they're ridiculous and picky and they'll put things in their mouths but they won't necessarily eat them um you think of like a slug or a snail and you're like well there's no way a goat is ever gonna eat a snail with a shell but the the baby snails they're like microscopic they're so tiny you would never see them and that's what happens with goats is they pick up that little itty bitty microscopic snail larva, and the goat's biology is just close enough to the deer that it doesn't kill the parasite, but as it. Um oh, I need to answer my cell phone. Hold on. Hold on. And I kind of lost my train of thought right there, but I think what I was saying was that um, the goat biology is close enough to the deer that it doesn't kill the parasite. But what happens is it survives, but it gets confused. So It is ingested into the animal, and when it gets to the gut, then it leaves the gut, and it's looking for that neural tissue because it's trying to get to where it can complete its life cycle. But in the goat, it gets lost, and it kind of, like, migrates toward what the neural tissue is, and it goes to the spinal cord, and... uh, it starts to cause problems there because it's like, oh, this isn't a deer, and I'm lost, and I'm just going to damage this neural tissue. Um, most commonly, what so what that looks like, and that's the that's the problematic part for goats is that it's damaging neural tissue, and which is, you know, neural tissue is kind of important. Um, most commonly, what this looks like in goats is an onset of what we call ataxia. Uh, so that is like kind of wobbly looking a little bit drunk. Maybe most often seems to happen in the hind limbs first, um, could look like dragging toes could look like kind of a sway to the hind end. And, uh, yeah, and if it can be very subtle at first, and then can progress over a number of days, kind of quickly. Another couple of things that can happen with this are kind, kind of some interesting neurologic effects because the way that, like the skin, for example, is innervated, uh, different segments of the spinal cord have nerves that come out like little branches leaving the spinal cord and that innervates different areas. And if certain areas of the spinal cord are damaged by these lost migrating parasites, then can cause those nerves to be irritated. And those nerves can be like nerves that make the skin feel. And if they're irritated, it feels like the skin is itchy. So they may scratch in certain areas. Um, like rub the fur off or be really itchy in certain areas. Um, But most commonly what we see is like that hind limb ataxia. In camelids and alpacas and llamas, this can be quite impressive. Like it can be like they're acutely paralyzed in their hind end, most commonly hind end. Um, uh, This can happen with goats too. It can be that... Impressive. If you, you know, have goats out grazing somewhere and you don't have a like a good look on every single one every single day, they're you know moving in a group. You might not notice something subtle like a hind toe dragging, something like that. Um, and then, or just the the nature of it. It's kind of a I. A, a, Crapshoot. You don't know what those parasites are going to do. And those parasites don't know what they're doing. They're, they're lost and confused. Um, I don't feel sad for them, though. They're being inconvenient to us. <laughs> so um, so you certainly can have goats that are acutely down, like I said, usually in their hind limbs as well. They can be paralyzed, can be pretty impressive. Um, I have seen these... Be so bad that they're like laterally recumbent, so they can be on their side. If the parasite is lost and it makes it up to like the cervical spine, so the spinal cord in the neck, or even to the brain, uh, there can be problems with you know, like causing like seizures and paraly- paralysis of more than just the hind end and. Uh, if balance issues, and that can, it's probably less likely from like brainstem stem problems, because that's where the balance center is, and more like spinal cord injury and affecting the animal's ability to control its own muscles. So if damage occurs to like one side of the spinal cord, and the animal can't use the limbs on that side, then it can't stand up. It needs help to stand up, or and it needs to be propped up until um, it can do it on its own. So these can be very, you know, it all is kind of dependent on where that lost parasite ends up, which is annoying. Like I said, most commonly hind end, but could be anywhere. So what do you do with these? Um, <laughs> excuse me. These guys need to be treated with antiparasitic medications uh, at higher than normal doses, and I tend to be pretty aggressive with them. Uh, Sometimes they also can benefit from anti-inflammatories, whether that's an NSAID or a steroid can depend on how severely they're affected. I don't usually put these guys on any antibiotics unless there's a concern, like, unless they're really severely affected, if they're down, if they're, like, laying on their side and they're stuck, then there can be a concern for, um, like... Uh, regurgitation aspiration pneumonia things like that which you know if, if it's real bad you don't want to deal with pneumonia on top of an animal that needs intensive supportive care because it's down so um sometimes like some antibiotics are reasonable um so talk with your vet because as with other parasites there's definitely some geographic um differences about what works where Uh, and I tend to give these guys high doses of injectable ivermectin and high doses of oral fenbendazole for several days in a row Um, talk with your vet Um, if you've got a a large animal vet even like if you got a horse vet like I've I think I've mentioned like our vet before I went to vet school is a really good horse vet Um, she also saw a lot of camelids like a lot of alpacas back (laughs) back when the alpaca boom was happening and people were buying alpacas for like $30,000 she did a lot of alpaca work so if even if people don't know about goats Uh, or like think they don't know about goats if they have any camelid experience they should know about this and like they teach it in vet school this is a a pretty common thing to you you know it's it's kind of a fun parasite to talk about the brain worm for the deer is lost in the goat or the alpaca um so, yeah, talk talk with your vet about that, um, and then I tend to repeat treatment. You're, talk with your vet because these things are off-label at these doses. If you have food-producing animals, like if you have a dough and milk or you have something that's going to be meat, you're definitely going to have to be considering uh, extended meat and milk withdrawal periods before uh, using food products from those animals. So talk with your vet. Uh, What else about these guys? So yeah, so I tend to uh, do that. So the first, the first step is you want to kill, kill the brain worm. It's the longer it's there, the longer it's alive and wiggling around, the more damage it's going to do to that important neural tissue. Once it's killed, like, the body is going to take care of it. Um, there's some... This just popped into my head, too. There's, like, some kind of fun stuff. Like, mostly in the real world, we diagnose these based on clinical signs and history and location. Um... You know, there's other differentials, other, like, possibilities for what looks like a, a spinal lesion. Uh, other possibilities for, like, the toe dragging, like a progressive uh, ataxia in the hind limbs or paralysis. Other things can happen, just like with uh, with other species. So you could be looking at trauma, if there was any trauma to the spinal cord. Uh, you could be looking at... Uh, cancer uh cancer can definitely happen especially lymphoma wherever it wants to happen um not super common in goats but i've seen i've seen lymphoma in goats in like weird places where you wouldn't expect it to be um a spinal tumor like there's not a lot you can do about it um but uh So, like, how would you know And in the real world, in, like, uh, feet on the ground, out in the field, uh, vet med, mostly you're looking for a response to treatment. You kill the worm, the animal gets better. Um, Other fun diagnostics that you can do, like, if you're going to take your... You're down goat to like your local vet school or referral large animal facility, uh, you can definitely do like a CSF tap. So that's cerebrospinal fluid and uh it's pretty easy to do in goats that uh you can do like a lumbar tap and uh you know you sedate them and sterile prep them and get a sample cerebrospinal fluid is the fluid that surrounds the spinal cord and the brain and it's usually clear um and yeah so you take that out and you have to get it analyzed really fast so this is kind of a referral center type thing I'd I'd do one of these if somebody wanted me to um, but then I'd have to really make sure I could get to FedEx and get it to a lab like that night the fresher you look at this stuff the better Uh, you're not going to see the parasite in it you are going to see uh, what we call it uh, pleocytosis so normal cerebrospinal fluid should not have a lot of cells in it Uh, when there's inflammation, so also like something like meningitis, so infection of the meninges, which are the the tissues that keep the cerebrospinal fluid near the neural tissue and protect it. Um, men, that's meningitis. So bacterial meningitis, viral meningitis. These are all these are all things, um, and you can see increased cells in those events, and what we would see in uh, Meningeal worm, hopefully, is what we call a eosinophilia. Eosinophils are one of the lines of white blood cells that are specific for parasites. So when those are elevated, like in peripheral blood, like in white blood cells circulating, uh, I expect them to... Uh, Like, maybe it's a cat with fleas, or maybe it's got a GI parasite infection that is trying to fight off That's Eosinophils usually are increased in response to a parasite, or also can be increased in response to, like, an allergen. But uh, eosinophilia in CSF is consistent with meningeal worm so that's that's kind of fun that's probably like way more information than your average goat producer needs but um it's kind of cool when you can you can do that you're never like you're never gonna like really really know um that's that's a confirmatory test but it's not like i said you're not going to get a meningeal worm in that csf tap you're going to be looking for those white cells increased white cells increased eosinophils um The only, like, really 1,000% for sure way to diagnose this is on postmortem and sending for a necropsy with examination of those neural tissues. And you can see the lesions. uh, You can see the parasites. There's, like, some pretty cool pictures out there of, uh, you know, these animals that died and had their spinal cords cut out and some of them them have the parasites right there and they're stained and there they are. So it's kind of cool, not cool for the animal, not cool for the parasite, not cool for anyone involved, but kind of cool to look at. Um, Yeah, so aside from killing the parasite, back to treatment, um, you are looking at supportive care. So Any kind of spinal lesion, whether it's trauma or a tumor or like a disc in a dachshund or a a worm that got lost and messed up the spinal cord is going to, uh, it's going to have to heal. And nerves take a really long time to heal, which is why the best case scenario is to catch these early. These goats with meningeal worm um, and kill it because then they've not had a lot of time to wreak havoc on that neural tissue. I can't remember. I think it's something like nerve cells regenerate at like one millimeter a week or day or something like that. I can't remember. Maybe I'm thinking of corneal tissue too. I don't know, but it's slow. It's a slow process. Nerves can regenerate, uh, or regrow and reconnect. Their nerves, neurons, are like these long, little, skinny things that pass information up and down. So if they're cut and the information they're trying to pass is "Hey, move that muscle," "Hey, stand up," that's that's the problem. Is like that that. Um, that info isn't getting where it needs to be. So um, they can improve. Uh, Anti-inflammatories can help. Uh, Killing the worm is the big thing. I've had animals recover from this, from like, you know, like the down laterally recumbent, needed to help to stand up or very weak in the hind end needed help to like posture to urinate and get better to the point where they can walk around Uh, sometimes they have funny they may have like a funny stature in the hind end they can have permanent uh neurogenic muscle atrophy so that means that the nerve going to whatever muscle body muscle belly is affected did not regenerate and when the muscle is not stimulated by the nerve it just kind of wastes away Um, sometimes these animals can still walk around it really depends what muscle is affected uh, but that they can compensate with other muscles, but sometimes you can put hands on, like, hind limbs, for example, and feel one compared to the other and be like, oh, that feels way different. That muscle right there is way smaller than the other side. So they can do... They can do okay with that. I mentioned already, like, if they're really down uh, on their side, you really want to prop them up because that's important for erectating, for uh, bringing up cud and chewing it, and for avoiding bloat, and uh, for avoiding pneumonia. If they're going to be down, you want them to be sternal, so that means, like, resting on their sternum on the front of their chest. Um, Some... So, like, here's this really annoying thing that happens. Prevention of P. tenuous. So there's a couple of ways you can approach this. One way is uh, some people will give ivermectin, uh, and I like ivermectin injectable for this, because if you give it orally, it's mostly going to stay in the gut and not really get out into higher concentrations into the peripheral and neural tissues. Um, So I usually do injectable. Um, It's off-label for goats, like I said before. Even at not high doses, it's off-label for goats. And actually, ivermectin is not labeled for dairy cows either so if you have dairy animals like I just don't use ivermectin in my animals because it's not in cows it sticks around for a long time if you're looking for residues in your milk it sticks around for a long time and for us in a commercial dairy setting like that's not okay Um, I use different dewormers when I need to deworm my goats uh So I don't I don't do routine like ivermectin injections because of that uh, if you have pets or maybe if you have meat goats I don't know about like the withholding for meat honestly I'd have to go look it up and possibly contact Farad which is the food animal residue something or other like they're trying to prevent drug residues in food animals Um, and they're very helpful. So, um, that is one thing there, um, pets, on the other hand, if you have like a couple of little pet weathers, uh, I, and you know that there's deer around, I am not opposed to saying, okay, it's like September, go ahead and give them some ivermectin so they don't get meningeal perm. The whole milk withholding thing, I'd probably be... Oops. Sorry. I just dropped my thing. Um, I'd probably be more concerned about the meat withholding with injectable ivermectin. uh, But the whole milk withholding thing... (sighs) Yeah, I, I shouldn't even say this um, Ivermectin is very safe it's really like a commercial thing that you don't want Ivermectin in your <laughs> dairy products um, if you have your own personal goat it's probably not going to kill you if there's a little bit of Ivermectin in the milk that you're drinking or the cheese that you're making for yourself at home So, a couple more notes about prevention of meningeal worm. Uh, I mentioned ivermectin. uh, The camelid alpaca... Uh and uh, llama people may also be more up on this it's a newer product which i believe is doromectin the trade name is long range Uh, so it's a the family of anti-parasitics that all those that ivermectin and doromectin belong to are macrocyclic lactones so the doramectin is basically like a long acting macrocyclic lactone it is pretty pricey i looked it up before i started talking when i was thinking about this podcast um it's like a bottle of it is like a, a small like 100 mil bottle is like I think it was like 300 bucks or something like that so it's not inexpensive uh, but it can be nice for those animals that are pets or like alpacas most people don't eat them so that can be a good option for uh, preventing meningeal worm it's basically they give it like once or twice a year i think and it's it's solid coverage and seems to be working well is my understanding Uh, a professor of mine from vet school who was like the uh the camelid guru of the school was working on a pharmacokinetics paper on it when i was there i don't know if they've got it published yet but basically we're looking at efficacy for it and i think they found it was good and i don't know if it's but i don't know if that's like officially out and published and peer reviewed yet but anyway so that's that's an option maybe The other thing is going to be preventing snails in the environment and preventing deer in the environment. So I mentioned how I don't use ivermectin in my does because they are milk-producing animals and in a commercial herd where we sell our products to the public, and I can't have residues of any medications in any of our products, so we just don't use that. Uh, I, Ivermectin, aside from meningeal worm, really isn't my favorite thing for anything. Uh, the other intestinal parasites I tend to think it's not really that great for. It's been around for a while. It's been heavily used. It's been available over the counter. Uh, so it's. I think parasites have generally built up a pretty good resistance to it as far as your normal GI parasites So I I use other stuff for deworming for GI parasites. Uh, My own, so how do I, do I worry about meningeal worm in my own does? Not really, because I don't have a lot of, we definitely have deer like in our neighborhood, but I don't see them in my immediate vicinity a lot and I think that has to do with a couple of things one is like we have a good fence for the goats I have never seen a deer in the goats and the does pasture Uh, I we have a Multiple dogs, multiple crazy pointer dogs that run around in the woods and will like go around the perimeter of the fence. Not like the whole thing, they don't get to the back in the woods, but I think their craziness is at least somewhat. Enough and them leaving their smell and marking is somewhat enough to deter deer from wanting to hang out. I think they also tend to deter predators. We don't, people not very far from us regularly see bears and coyotes. We see foxes, but I'm not too worried about foxes as far as the goats go. Um, So, discouraging deer from hanging around is also good. Uh, and then also kind of minimizing snails and slugs in the environment is good. couple ways you can do that, like I've looked at a lot of gardening forum type, type uh, sources for slug and snail prevention because slugs and snails are a problem for your vegetable gardeners because they eat the stuff and... We want to eat the stuff, not feed the slugs and snails. So there's options there. Some of them would involve, like, significant labor and financial investment. Like, you can put a, like, a sand barrier, like a little bridge of sand around your... Environment where your animals are so it's like a little sand wall it'd be like a foot wide barrier of regular old sand and I guess snails and slugs don't like to go across it and then they don't come into your goat's environment um, also I've heard that copper does the same thing I don't know if that's like technically proven and that would be a lot of copper and very expensive so I probably wouldn't do that myself either But, um, other things like snails and slugs really like dry or sorry, don't like dry. They like, uh, moist, damp, low lying water, like standing water, wet environments. So the drier your environment is, the less likely you are to have a snail and slug problem. And, uh, also, not overgrazing is good. If you're, I think there's something about how like slugs and snails will only go up forage. Like they'll only climb up the blades of grass so far uh, before they'll stop. So if you're if you have grass, mostly grass grazing for your goats, they're and they're chewing it right down to the ground, then they're maybe more likely to pick up the little baby slugs and snails versus if they have access to browse. So if they have access to trees, which are higher up, then they're not going to have, uh, you know, the snails are much less likely to climb up the trunk of the tree and like go out the branches and all that stuff. Than, uh, than just climb off the blades of grass. So, depending on what they're eating and just where it's located in proximity to the ground, like this is kind of like think about what slugs and snails like to do and try to avoid them. Uh, Probably some people out there would talk about like spraying or like land treatments for slugs and snails. I tend to not like those things because they kind of scare me. It's really hard to apply something to your ecosystem and not have it really screw everything else up. So... Reasonable slug and snail prevention, keeping the environment dry, well cleaned out. If you've got like a dry lot or something like that, that's, you know, sun exposure things. Think of a, <laughs> what slugs and snails like and then do the opposite is going to be a good way of preventing them from hanging around, basically. Um, so those are your kind of your options for prevention. I think I kind of talked about everything that I wanted to touch on for meningeal worm and I will try to put together some show notes with some fun pictures and things like that and, as always, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions for topics, please always feel free to email me at goat.cara at gmail.com. That's G-O-A-T-D-O-C-C-A-R-A at gmail.com. The website is goatdoc.com, And I'm on Instagram at goat underscore doc. And... Thanks very much for listening, and I will talk to you guys soon.